Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with this week's toast, yours truly, Todd Benton. Helen Hillix is our co-host this week. Today's topic, taking off the masks we all wear. Let's support everyone, especially men and boys, to get real. Have you ever felt outraged by the roles that men and women have been given in our world? Have you ever suppressed your nature, hidden your weakness, been afraid to ask for help, or felt intimidated by other people? If you're sick of wanting to impress, dominate, or win, or try and fit into some role that isn't you, you're in for a treat. We'll be speaking with Ashanti Branch, founder of the Ever Forward Club. The Ever Forward Club helps at-risk young men learn to get real and find the emotional support they need to lead successful lives. We'll talk with Ashanti about the Ever Forward Club's workshop, Taking Off the Mask, and explore with him some important questions. Can we share our authentic selves while negotiating the often rigid pressure of cultural roles? There is surprising power in uncovering what we often hide, deny, repress, or ignore. What if we showed the world what's behind our masks? Before we speak with Ashanti, we've got a couple of interrevolutionary news items. So take it away, Helen. I'm here, and I have two great stories that Todd um, summarized for us today. One is the Obama administration cancels oil and gas leases on Blackfeet tribe sacred grounds. And that's from November 16th from the Washington Post. The Interior Department on Wednesday, November 16th, announced a settlement from Devon or Devon Energy for the cancellation of leases in Montana for oil and gas drilling on lands considered sacred by the Blackfeet tribe. Quote, this is the right action to take on behalf of current and future generations, end quote, Interior Secretary Sally Jewell said on the department's website. She said it would protect the region's, quote, rich cultural and natural resources and recognizes the irreparable impact that oil and gas development would have on them, end quote. The settlement comes as Obama administration seeks to wrap up outstanding issues and as Native Americans in nearby North Dakota are protesting to block the construction of an oil pipeline just north of the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation. So this is really exciting news, and we certainly hope that it will spread and they will cancel the pipeline that, or at least reroute it, whatever, whatever is for the highest good. But I'm sure the people in Standing Rock are very excited to hear that news story. And the second news story is Barbara Boxer introduces legislation to abolish Electoral College. I think you know, everybody has seen a bunch of... Uh, talk on social media since the election because Hillary won the election, the popular vote, and Trump won the Electoral College, and apparently uh, a lot of people are up in arms about that. And this is from November 14th from The Hill. Senator Barbara Boxen, Democrat from California, introduced legislation on Tuesday to get rid of the Electoral College after Hillary Clinton lost the presidential presidential election despite leading in the popular vote. Quote, in my lifetime, I have seen two elections where the winner of the general election did not win the popular vote, Boxer said in a statement. In 2012, Donald Trump tweeted, quote, the Electoral College is a disaster for a democracy. I couldn't agree more. One person, one vote, end quote. According to Pew, Clinton would be the fifth person to win the popular vote but lose the election. 
Boxer's legislation would amend the Constitution to abolish the Electoral College. Even if it is approved by Congress, it would need to be approved by three-fourths of the states within seven years before it would take effect. So that's an interesting thing. Uh, an interesting development. Who knows what will come of it? But I think it is a situation in which so many people are upset. I mean, I remember when Al Gore, you know, won the tooth the uh, election by the popular vote, but lost to Bush in the electorate in the electoral college again, and people were upset about it then. It, it's a very difficult thing to wrap your head around. So I don't know what to say about it. I understand the reasons that they have it, but. Uh, I think it's good to bring up these things and take a look, take a new perspective. So there you have it. And back you. to you, Todd. Okay, thank you. Well, Ashanti, uh, I'm really thrilled that you're with us today. I first uh, learned about Ashanti Branch uh, by watching the film, The Mask You Live In. Uh, it's a really powerful film by Jennifer Siebel Newsom, which we've talked about before on this show. Um, it's about, you know, how are these kind of narrow definitions of masculinity in our culture uh, cause boys to really do things that are, you know, against our, you know, our true nature. So, um, and I was really inspired by your particular segment in the film, Ashanti. And, uh, you know, instead of uh, me sharing all that, I'd like to, you know, have, start with giving you an opportunity to share your story. In addition to the mask you live in, you were uh, recently featured at TEDx Marin, and your talk was the masks we all wear. So, could you share with us, kind of summarize what you what you said there? Wow! Yeah. So thank you. So glad to be here with you. Um, you know, hearing the news articles and hearing just everything I in the news today, it really just makes me uh, really clear that. The work that we're trying to do in our community with, in all of our communities, with supporting um, not only our young men, but also adults and teachers and educators and parents to really look at the masks we wear. And and I know that I've had to wear a lot of different masks in this last um, year of just trying to weed out the noise. Um, you know, my story starts when I was born, you know, my I was raised by a single mother on welfare here in Oakland, California. Um, we struggled a lot. And I think that when I think about the struggle, I, th I think about like, like I, I'm not saying it to complain about it. I'm saying like no one gave me an option if, if I was going to grow up with a life that was uh, worthwhile, that felt fulfilling, that felt like I had opportunities. No one gave me an option. You know, when I showed up on the planet, like my father had died before I was born. So when I showed up here, there was already like, things stacked against me that I had no control over. You know, I grew up in a community where being smart wasn't highlighted. Like you weren't like, you weren't like highlighted because you were the smartest in the class. Like you were the, you did the, you were the best. Like it was, I mean, unless you were an athlete maybe, or you were a, a, a musician, like those things were highlighted for being the best. But in the classroom, it was really a time where you were like, oh yeah, he's the best. And that's awesome for your academics. Um, and so I, I, I wanted to be smart, but I knew that growing, you know, elementary is easy to kind of get away with that because they give you a lot of stars and they, you know, there's, there's only with like 20 kids all day long. So you can kind of work your way around that kind of, that kind of atmosphere. But when you get to middle school, you got six classes, maybe seven, you got like 150, 180 kids every day. You got to try and 
impress and that you can use that word however you want. You got to either you gotta at least coexist with them, whether you want to impress them or not. But I knew really clearly that trying to be the smart guy wasn't okay. And so I kind of fell into the trap of acting the way people thought I should act. Like the way that my peers, I didn't really care what teachers thought for the most part. You know, as a young man in middle school, I, I didn't care what the teachers thought. I knew I cared what people thought on outside on the playground, walking to school, getting home from school. Those people at the lunch table, like I care what those people thought. And being too smart didn't benefit me. And so I just kind of slipped by. I just tried to slip by. I don't want nobody calling my house because then they're going to make things worse for me. But I knew that, you know, I could pretend enough to not care about my schoolwork. I could pretend enough to not care about my classes. And so that's how I operated. And it wasn't until a teacher like really just uh, got on my case one day. She pulled me aside and she was like, um, she was giving me a long speech. And I don't remember any of the speech. I remember one sentence in the whole half an hour detention. She was yapping at me. And I, I remember, I would never forget her. But this is what she said. She said, um, I know you're sad that you're, and, and when she said you're sad, I stopped right there. Because the only reason I listened is because in Oakland, a young black boy young cannot be sad. Like that, that's a dangerous emotion to have because sadness is weakness. At least where I, the way I grew up, the way I was learned, like you can't be sad. You can't be afraid. You know, you can't be like, you can't be like too sorrowful or feeling shame or guilt or apologetic about something. You just got to kind of hold it in because that's what they tell you you're supposed to do as a man. And so the only reason I listened to this sentence is because she said you were sad. And I was about to talk back to her and say, I ain't sad. I'm mad is what I was going to tell her. Um, she said, this is what she said. She said, I know you're sad that your father died before you were born, uh, but life doesn't give us what we want. Life gives us what we get and you have to make the most out of it. And I heard it like I, of everything she said that half an hour, whatever long I was there for detention. This is the sentence I heard. And that sentence changed my life. And I was really clear that, okay, then my job is to do something with my life. Like my job is not to use my father's death as the reason I should be acting a fool, but maybe I should be doing it so that I could make him proud wherever he is, right? Like I could make, make his, my, my name, the branch name proud, even though I didn't have anybody really telling me that I should. And so that's when it all changed. And I mean, I, and I got to high school, I finally got my act together. I mean, I was have my act together going into high school, but you know, I was trying to be focused. I was going to get A's and B's. Like my name is like Ashanti Branch. I was like always saying, well, my name starts with A and my last name starts with a B. <laughs> I, I, I better get nothing less than a B. That was my motivation to myself, you know. Um, Whatever and, works. That's right. That's right. And 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 and, and I'm telling the, the brief story just to get in the background is that I was just trying to figure out how to how to be in the world with no male figure. My mom was trying to make me be a good person, but she couldn't teach me how to be a man. She couldn't teach me what qualities and characteristics that that I should have, or that she could teach me things she wanted to see in me, but how to do that. Well, you tell somebody to be nice and be kind and be gentle. Well, th- those re- those qualities are not respected out in the world that I was walking home and back and forth to school from. So it wasn't until like high school when I was, um, you know, thinking I was going to college and try to join this program called Upward Bound. And they were like, well, you know, you have a good application here. But the problem is you- you're not first generation. I said, of course I am. Nobody in my family went to college. They were like, yeah, your mom went to college. I'm like, no, we-. I said, we're poor. Well, there is no way my mom went to college. They were like, well. Your mom's a teacher, so in order for her to be a teacher, she had to go to college. And I was, I was, I was livid. I was like, I was like, I'm gonna have a talk with her today. I'm gonna have a talk with her about her career choices because you chose us to be poor. Like you chose a job 
from college that would make us like barely be able to pay all the bills. And I love my mom, but I was like, I was really mad at that. And I, I was clear about two things. I was clear that I couldn't understand that you could go to college and still be broke. And then I was also clear that I would never be a teacher. That was the two things I was clear about. And, and I made a decision that day that I would never, I, I, I would find a job that I was going to make me money because I would never raise my kids to just barely get by. And so those are, those are like these ingrained lessons when I'm 17 and 15 and 13, these lessons that I had decided about my life. And so worked hard, went to college, became a civil engineer. And then after you know, working in engineering, I realized there is um, there's something wrong because I got this job and making a lot of money now, but... I'm not as happy as I should be. Like something, they, they, somebody lied about this dream. This, uh, you know, this get a good job, make good money, and you'd be happy. And I was like, I was buying, I was doing something on the weekends and to find happiness. Right, I was traveling here, doing that, but it wasn't like it wasn't like a fully through me. It wasn't in me, and it wasn't until I started teach tutoring at this learning center that it, it, it the, the spark came on, and I was like, no, 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 not me. <laughs> I uh, no, 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 not not me, not teaching. First of all, because I already claimed that back when I was seventeen, fifteen, I was like, I'm never going to be a teacher. But it was like the thing that I felt was un, un unexplainable, almost, but almost that thing when you like, I'm supposed to be doing this. Like, I'm this is what I was put on this earth to do. Like, I'm, I don't, I feel good about doing it. I feel good about the results, and I want to do more of it. I want to do it even better. And and that's how my life changed in terms of leaving engineering and becoming a teacher. And then, it, you know, that first year teaching is when the Ever Forward Club started. I was not trying to start a nonprofit. I was not trying to create an organization. I was a teacher that first year who was failing. And I was like, okay, there's something that has to change. Like, I'm, I'm working really hard. I think I'm a little smart. I, there's no way that you should be failing my class because you're smart. And it was mostly these young men in my class who were failing. And I was like, I don't get it. But I was willing to leave teaching that first year. I was like, I'll go back and make money. Like, I'm not going to be sitting here, first of all, being broke and being a failure. Like, you're crazy. Like, I, I didn't sign up for that part, you know? <laughs> I, signed up, I signed up understanding the financial issue I did for myself, but I didn't sign up to be like, I'm not being successful in my class. I'm not, I'm not able to help these young men who are really smart learn. And so what I did is I just said, this is my last straw. I invited them to lunch one day, and I said, look, in exchange for lunch, I'll buy you lunch once a week. In exchange for lunch, teach me how to be a better teacher. Like, tell me what I'm doing wrong. Help me fix what I'm, what I'm somehow missing because you're smart and you're failing my class. Like, that just doesn't make sense to me. And That's you know, a brilliant strategy. That is so brilliant. Oh, man. I was at a law. I was telling you at the moment, I was like, I'm, I'm confused. And, I, and that is actually how it started. That's how the Ever Forward Club started. And during these lunch meetings is when they began to tell me, like, look, you, um, smart's not cool. I'm not going to walk around like be no nerd, no geek, no teacher's pet. Like they were clear in their minds. And it wasn't until that moment where it began to awaken in me what I had done in middle school. Like I knew that behavior. I knew that acting like you couldn't do the stuff or you didn't care about the stuff was a way of feeling good around other people who thought that that was cool. And so I said, OK, we're going to figure a way to out. I knew that I knew it 100 percent clear of what they were doing. They were pretending they were faking. They were they were masking up. And I didn't call it a mask back then, but I was clear. And so we just began to find ways of helping them learn that, okay, you, you can still, we can help you fake the system. You can be cool and still pass your classes. Like, how about we do that? And that's how the work began. The program began to grow. And uh, just like in 2015, you know, that was 12, that's 2004. So that was, you know, several years ago. And in 2015, when the documentary came out, 
and they featured our work, it just really began to open some doors for us to really go out and talk more about this work around this mask. And uh, it's been it's been powerful. It's been, we've been able to support a lot of people and a lot of communities uh, with the workshop, and we're taking it all over the all over the world now. Cool. I, I wanted to um, ask you about how the idea of the mask came to you. So, because that was very integral to the film, and was did that come the mask come from what you the work you were doing? Um, I don't really know. I just okay. they came they came to our they 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 said they were coming to film, and uh, they you know they first interviewed me, and then they said yeah we'd like to come see you you do you know work with your young men, and I said well you can come to this the school where I'm working right now as a dean at Fremont High School, which is actually my alma mater. Coincidentally, like it was 20 years later to the time I had graduated. That I was back at my high school, and um, and I was working with these young men who were really smart, and they were they were failing my class. Like they were well, they weren't in my class. They were just they were failing most of their classes, and I saw the same behaviors just reiterated. And so they were like, well, "We're going to come film," but you know, every week we met, they were they would be in the circle and they would not tell the truth. They would they would be lying. They would be like, you know, if they were ranking themselves on a scale from one to ten, they would be like, "I'm a ten. I'm a ten. All around the circle." Maybe one nine, but mostly everybody's a 10. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm the dean here. Like, you got four referrals today. How are you a 10? How is, how is that 10 behavior, right? Like, I, I, knew, I knew their backstories for a lot of them. But in, in the circle, my job is a whole space. So I yeah. just, I let them lie, basically. I have to let them lie, you know, even though I know that it's not the truth. And so they were like, well, we're going to film anyway, even though they don't really tell the truth. I'm like, oh, man. You, you're not going to fill me with a bunch of young men lying to each other. And so I was like, I was trying to think of an activity that I could try and do that. Let them kind of talk about it without talking about it. And that's, mm -hmm. that's how the mass activity came. It, it looks very different in a documentary than it does today. Cause we've, we've evolved it. And so far, I think we've, we're up to about 9,000 people have gone through that process with us. And our goal this year, this school year is to take another, another eight to 10,000 people through that experience. So it's growing and it's, uh, you know, we're in the process of, you know, reaching out to more communities and we're supporting more, more students. And, and that's how it's happening right now. So that's awesome. Wow. Can you tell us about the masks process? I mean, what, what or do you want it? Do you want to do that? <laughs> well, 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 I would encourage people to watch the documentary. I think yes. that what they will see in there really is, is the essence of it. I'll tell you the essence of it, because I think that's really important. I think when we, anytime we go to a school and they say, so what, what's going to happen in there? And we'll say, look, the first part of the workshop is really an opportunity for exploration. We want young people to have fun, but also like it gets really real, really fast. Because I think that, you know, most times if you're operating, like I operated in school, you know that there are certain things that you are allowed to show people about yourself and there's many things that you're not. And so what we try and do is create a space for young people to talk about, young people, adults, because we do it for adults as well, um, to talk about the stuff that is on our mask. We call our mask the, what we let the world see about us, right? What are the things yeah. we let people see? And then the other part of the mask is stuff we don't let people see. So we let them, we try to get them to do that in a really fun way that they don't know what's happening until it actually hits them. And there's, yeah. a point the, there's a point in the part of the workshop that when they're looking at somebody else's mask, where they're like, oh, wait a minute, this, this could have been mine. Like this, these, are, these are some things on the back of this mask that are like almost like mine. And when I usually, I don't usually give a commentary after they begin to read the other side. I talk to them about, well, look, um, what did you notice just happened? And I think what young people, whether I'm in a middle school, or I'm in a, you know, in a corporate setting, they recognize that there's a moment when you recognize people are getting real. 
and the games and the playing and the goofing off that settles down. It almost always settles into a space of like something real just happened right here. And I don't really have all the words for it, but I know that it was, it was real. And that's how it happens for these young people. And it's been really powerful for us. Um, that that space in the workshop where they get a chance to like not only explore other people's masks, but then they get a chance to figure out, well, how much of my mask am I willing to take off in this space? Mm-hmm. And each of them has a right. You know, you we tell them, look, there's a range of things we don't talk about, right? We don't talk about things because no one ever asks us. We'd be willing to talk about them probably if somebody asks us, but no one ever asked me certain things, so I don't talk about it. But then there's the things that you may ask me, and I'm not going to talk about it anyway, right? Or I'm just, I'm going to pretend like it doesn't exist or whatever. So there's a range of things that we don't talk about. And so we give them a, a wide range of things that they could, you know, help to talk about so they can make a connection with each other. And that's what it's really about. Our workshops are about helping young people make a deeper connection to themselves. And then what happens from there? I mean, uh, does the does the work continue in the schools that you go to? Do they Do they form a club? Do they become part of your club? How does that, talk about that. How does that work? Yeah, so so schools at this time, they bring us in. So we do workshops with parents. You know, it's just like a one-time workshop. If we do a workshop with um, students, the school would have known, usually in the beginning, that they either want a club or they don't. The workshop is our first level of engagement with the school. It's like, here is where we start. We start with the workshop. And when your young people are clear, and after that workshop, they'll know whether they want to be a part of something that gets that real. Some people don't. Some young people don't. They're like, oh, no. That was way too deep. That was way too much. I don't want to be, you know, and it's okay because we know that everyone's not ready to be in a really space of opening themselves up and really begin dealing with some of that stuff, you know. But what we have to do right now is we have to figure out when we go into a school who knows they want a club, we help prepare the mentors who are going to work with those young men throughout the rest of the year. And then... um, those mentors get trained by us to support those students. I see. Cool. Cool. That's so awesome. <laughs> so I also, I understand that since its founding, the Ever Forward Club has helped um, all of its more than 150 members graduate from high school. And 93% have gone on to attend either two or four-year colleges or some form of military or trade school. So I, I can see how that could happen, but could you talk a little bit about how does that happen? How does taking off the mask, uh, how is that a part of that kind of success? Well, I think even before I knew what, oh, hold on, that was, that's the bell. <laughs> okay, that's the school bell. Oh, there it is, so we're, we're in the thick of it, we're in the thick of it, right? Um, yes. Uh, what, what we learned, what, early on, I, I wasn't doing taking off the mask, but I think I was doing it without knowing it, right? I, yes. was, create, I was creating a space for young men to talk about their stuff, like in a healthy way, in a safe way, and to give them a space that they could like recognize that it's okay because there's other people who are dealing with some of the similar stuff. But because we all often just walk around seeing you on the outside, we don't ever have a chance to really recognize that people are dealing with real stuff too. So when we first started, it was just a, it was a, it was a brotherhood. It was a support group for these young men. They came every week. We had lunch. We talked about some real stuff. They helped to get us off their chests. And we, what, what, we, what we know is that opportunity to let go of some of that steam, to let go of some of the pain, to let go of some of the, the sadness, to, give, to take power from the story and take, take the power and use it as a take the war story and turn it into a medicine story. Like those are the things we talk to the young people about is because we're, 
if if I think that my story is my only my story and and it's such a a bad thing that it's gonna it's gonna hold me down forever, and no one ever tells me that my story is what makes me unique and what makes me what makes me me. And so therefore, if I could take power back from the issue and say, look, I, I this happened to me, but I'm but I'm gonna but I'm gonna use that to help others not have to go through that, or I'm gonna use that to give back to my community. I'm gonna figure out what I'm really passionate about, and so. That's how it happened. It was, in the early days, I was not even trying to collect data. The first time we collected data, so the program started in 2004. There was a lady, a mom, one of my mom's friends. My mom was a teacher, so one of her friends, um, an incredible supporter. She's been a supporter of us since like 2006, 2007. Uh, she said, "Hey, do you um, do you have some data?" And I was like, "What is what is that going to look like?" You know, I'm a math teacher, so I know what data is, but I'm like. What kind of data? We just meet and have lunch, you know, because I wasn't trying to codify what we were doing. I wasn't trying to do best practices. I knew that these young men needed a place to talk. And I wasn't trying to think of, like, what are my measurables and what, like, I have to do a lot of that now, like, for grants and for resources. But I'm like, I knew that there was a place that they just needed to talk. Yeah. And so that's what we were doing. So when she asked me, would I have data? I'm like, I don't know if I have any data. She said, well, let's think about this. How many of the students who have been in your program have graduated? I'm like, oh, they all graduated. They all, everyone who's in our program, they graduate high school. She's like, wait, are you telling me you have 100% graduation rate? I'm like, yeah. Um, well, I, well, I guess I didn't think of it like that because I wasn't, I wasn't trying to find data for what I was doing. I was doing heart work. Mm-hmm. I was doing work to help connect with the heart of these young men. I wasn't trying to say, how can I measure how well you're doing with what I'm trying to do for you? Because I wasn't even thinking of it that way. I was like a teacher who wanted to be better at teaching, and that's how it I love it. I love that. And so that's been how it grew. And so now that I'm looking back, and we begin when we first began to start collecting data, we're like, oh, okay. So let's let's start looking at that thing. But then you start finding out you need more data. You need like, what are your measurables, and what is your theory of change? And so these are new things that, as an executive director, I have to think about. But um, I we we definitely have a lot of stories, a lot of anecdotes, story, right? A lot of qualitative data around the young people's lives who've changed by being a part of this brotherhood and. Young men who now are adults and who are having kids and who are friends with each other still from being in Ever Forward. That's that's the stories, you know. And so how do we begin to tell more of those stories, you know? Is that is that a challenge? Oh, go ahead, Helen. Well, I was just going to say our group, the innerrevolution.org, we have a book called Living with Reality. Mm. And one of the main tenets of that book is that most of the pain of humanity is caused because we feel separate. And that connection is really the core of of happiness and of mental health and physical health and just a general sense of well-being. And that's what I'm taking away from what you're saying, Ashanti, is that it really was the deep heart connection that these young men felt with you that that helped them solidify their their sense of well-being enough to support them to become good students. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it was, yes, I think it was that deep connection. It was also having someone who actually believed in you. Like, you know, at that school that we were at, there was so many students who were not doing well. And I think that a lot of them did not have a connection with teachers. They did not have a connection. So, like, let's say I was walking down the hall, going into the, to the teacher's room or whatever, and I would see one of my students with some other students in the hallway. I would go up to the group. And I would talk, I would look at my student in the eye, the Ever Forward member, and I'd be like, 
go to class. <laughs> right? And the other student would be like, who is this? Who is this? Who is, who is this talking to you like that? Right? And I would say to the other young man, I'm like, oh, sorry. We, 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 we go way back. So you please mind your own business. And then I would walk away. Right? <laughs> now, now most, students, most students knew that I would tell any student to go to class. I didn't have a problem telling any student to go to class. But when I'm talking about a situation like that, it was like I wanted that my young man to be really clear. You are not allowed to be sitting out, walking around, hanging out. And I'm going to hold you to an expectation of that if I see it, I'm going to correct it. You ultimately have to go to class. I'm not going to walk you to class. You're going to go to class. But the other students didn't get it. They were like, what? He just, he just like told you to go to class, right? But I think what, I, what, I, what they began to learn was that I cared about them. Like, like if you were an outsider, you would say, oh, he's kind of being aggressive. And I thought of it like this. Um, you know how when you see a tiger uh, grabbing the cubs and you're like, he's going to bite the cubs head off, right? And you're like, don't do it. Like, but you realize he's protecting them. He's like, you're gonna, I'm going to give you some corrective behavior, move over here. But he's not hurting them. But an outsider would be like, that's too aggressive. That's too rough. That's too whatever. And I knew that most people would think that, but I, but I wasn't really worried about them. I was worried about that young man missing class, not being where he needed to be. And it was, it was, a, it was that kind of building a relationship that I, that I had deposited enough into their, you know, their emotional bank account, right? I deposited, this is what Stephen Covey talks about, right? I had made enough deposits that when I told them to get their butt to class, whether I said it really nicely or I said it really kind of aggressively, they knew it was coming from a good place. Absolutely. You know, it reminds me again, our three principles of the inner revolution are oneness, mm. accountability, and mutual support. Yes. And you have all of those in your program, you know, and that's what part of what attracted us, I'm sure, attracted Todd to have you on the show, is that, you know, you believe that we are each other, that, you know, if if they're going to succeed, then all the kids have to succeed. I mean, that's what you're trying to promote. And, of course, what you're talking about and telling them, get your butt into class, is <laughs> accountability. It's accountability, and it's mutual support. It's supporting what's for the highest good of all. That's right. So, you know, I love your intuitive approach to, to oneness, accountability, and mutual support. You just intuitively knew the right thing to do with these kids, and it worked. You were guided. Yeah. And I think I was guided by my, by my story, right? I was guided by this idea that I, I didn't always have it in, under, under control. I didn't always have it together. I was, I was, I was, on, I was on the wrong road. And I just, it was, well, my mom wanted the best for me. My mom wanted me to get an education, but there's only so much your, your, your mom can do when she's a single mom raising kids. Like she has so many things to worry about. And I think that I had to begin when I, that teacher did that for me. I'll never forget her, Miss BP. I'll never forget her. Uh, that she absolutely changed my life. And I said, well, look, if I could change one other student's life, then maybe they're going to go off and change somebody else's life. And it just, you know, it's like that one. But I was always like, well, we're going to bring as many in who want to be here to be a part of this and help it grow. You know, I have another question for you, which just reminded me of that. If I can help one other person, how does this election play into what you're doing with the kids at, at this particular time in history? Oh, well, yeah, that's the. <laughs> um, OK, so. I've been very good about how I'm, I'm still managing my own self around this. So here's my big, my big answer to my community and to folks is that 
I'm my work is even more important now than ever. My work has always been important to me. It's been important to the community that I serve. It's been important to young men's issues all over. Um, and it's so important right now that these messages that we get from uh, from the people who we should be looking up to don't always operate that way. And I think that, mm-hmm. you know, what, what I, I was with a group of parents last week at a screening of the documentary, and a, a, a mom asked me a similar question. And I just said, you know, um, we're humans. And if we begin to make humans have so much power over us or so much, we, I mean, we, yeah, we have this thing we're supposed to be able to emulate and like look up to that person. But I, I, I say, look, like, we're human and humans are going to make mistakes. And so it, it happens with musicians, a- athletes. It happens with the, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's hard to even just figure out how to describe it. But I do know that for me and my own self is like, I want my young men to know, hey, there's, there's something that doesn't feel right, but, but our, our, our work has to continue. Like, we don't have a power over that thing. We don't have a power over the system that allowed that to happen. We have a power over our own individual voice, our own individual vote, and we can decide what we want to do to make our community better. And I said, that, so I tell them, I said, look, if you got something you want to work on, let's work on it together. But we can't, we can't lose focus on what we're trying to do. Like, you can't decide I'm going to go walk out of school every day and then not graduate and think that that's somehow making our country better because it doesn't make our country better. It, it's about you. You got to get an education so that then you can go and make, help become a part of some policy change that makes some bigger decisions. But you dropping out of school because now you're mad doesn't make our community safer or better or more vibrant. And so I, I'm, I'm holding on to the idea that um, I was doing Ever Forward before the election, and I'm, I'm going to continue doing it now. And I, my job is to make sure my young men know that we hold an expectation of you, how you act, how you speak to people, how you speak to each other, how you treat um, our community and our world. And we're going to continue holding our values high, even if others don't necessarily do so. Love it. I'm sure you agree, Todd. And that's pretty totally. much what pretty much what we're saying in the inner revolution is our work is more important than ever now. Mm-hmm. And that's what you started with, Ashanti, is our work is more important than ever. And I couldn't agree more that that's the that's the attitude to have in this time of complete unknown and mm-hmm. a lot of fear in mm-hmm. you know, especially in minority communities and I have so much empathy for that, and yet, just exactly as you said, our work has never been more important, and we have to fight for what we believe and keep going. Yeah, absolutely. How do you differentiate between, you know, like, you're talking about getting real, and that's really sharing your pain, and that's different from just sharing, like, whatever's top of mind, and one of the things that people have said about Trump that they like about him, people that voted for him is, you know, he, he speaks his mind. He says, you know, he says the truth. He says what's on his mind. Now, you know, uh, uh, I, I don't want to go down. I could go down a whole path there about the truth. <laughs> but um, how do you help the kids differentiate, like, when they're getting real? Uh, I guess it's, you know, part of the process is that it calls out that, um, that kind of, because you're asking them about their pain and what they're hiding. Um, but uh, yeah, what, how do you differentiate or do you differentiate? Do you talk about that with them? Oh yeah. Well, you know, I mean, the, so one of my classes that day, uh, you know, the day after they had did a walkout here at one of the the schools where I have a club and, um, the young people, the young men were in a like huge amount of like, you could just see this 
energy pent up in them, right? And I'm I have these two sides of me, right? As an yeah. educator, now I'm not I'm not there. I'm a I'm a I'm a social emotional teacher for them. So we have flexibility. We can put things to the side. We can you know do them later. We can like move things around based on just supporting their social emotional development. And so I asked them when they came in. I said, uh, Do you all want to talk about it? And they were like, Well, no, there's nothing to talk about. Like we just walked out today. We're mad. I was like, okay, well, you want to talk about what you're mad about? And I think that, you know, they're middle school, so they're trying to figure out language to say, here's what I'm mad about and here's what I'm thinking. Because a lot of it, they're feeling the energy from the adults who are feeling it, right? Like they're, you know, I think if you're 12 and 13, you may feel something. You, you, you may feel a lot of things, but I don't know the level of what. Clarity about what like, it is that you're yeah. feeling. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so what happened was, like, one of my students was just pacing around the room. I'm like, hey, what's going on? You want to tell me what's up? Like, we're going to talk about it. And I think what I'm trying to get them to do is to figure out when I get to the place where I have an overload of emotion. And if I don't have any words, do I have a, do I have a, do I want to go running? Do I want to go, you know, do I need to go do something, you know, energetically to get some of this energy out? How do I do it in a healthy way? And I think that uh, some of our young people, because they, they're not taught how to deal with emotional stuff. Like, we're taught, like, how to deal with the scratch on my finger. Oh, I can see that pain. There's a little blood right there. I'll clean it up. Oh, this is what I do when I poke my eye. Oh, I put some ice on it, right? I got a bloody nose. Like, they, 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 they learn things to do with these things that show some external consequences. Like, but when they are feeling it inside, they don't know where, to, where do you touch? Where do you, where do you put ice? Where do you, where do you wash off? Where do you do? And I think <laughs> to, to give them some tools, and I told them, I said, look, if you're angry, let's, let's get some of this energy out. And I think it was hard. It was really hard. I just noticed that the, they were really just like really tense. And these are middle schoolers. So you know that, you know, other students. And there was a lot of walkouts here in the Bay Area. There's a lot of schools walked out. And just the energy was just overloaded. And I think we just got to help our young people have voice. But also, how do we help them navigate it now? Because it, it's not, it's not going to end anytime soon, you know? Yeah. Right. And process it. How do we help them process their feelings? Yeah. yeah. You know, I, that's something I've noticed in, in the young people is, and I'm all for doing protests if, you know, if it's for a productive cause, of course. Yeah. Um, but I noticed my, my own daughter's 27 and she was just beside herself. You know, she was just, and she didn't want to talk about it. And she was just mm-hmm. so angry and so disillusioned. And, mm-hmm. you know, so I agree with you. It's like, let's get some of those feelings out and how do we process them? Because if you just, if you just stay with the feeling of being upset, just right. like you said earlier, it's not going to help you keep moving forward. That's right. That's right. You're going to get into the energy of I am against that instead of I am for all the things that I was before already. Right. Right. And then having, I mean, I think, what, what do you go next? Like, if, now I'm against it all. So now what do I do? I'm still here. Right. And now I got to figure out, do I, yeah, I think how to, for, for the young people we work with, it's like, Okay, so how are you navigating? And it happens every day. It's like they're doing stuff every day, and so these new these new pressures that come on is like we got. We believe that if we give them a space to talk about it in a healthy way, to express the fear, anger, sadness, uh, doubt, confusion, then it allows that when new things come on, they got room for the new confusions, <laughs> new pains, new angers, new frustrations. But if you just bottle it up and you just hold on to it. Like it's gonna explode. It's like it's like a pressure. It's like a pressure valve. Like there's is only so much it's gonna take before you 
take it out on the wrong person or on yourself or begin using some kind of substances to cover it up. And we, and we see it so much. We see it, we see it so much. We see them, the the violence, the gangs, the, all these things that are trying to cover up some of this, this pain that sometimes has no, they they don't have yet words for. And so that's what we're trying to do is like, look, we got to give words to it. We got to do something with it in a healthy way. Um, cause we see, we, we see the results of it coming out in unhealthy ways. You know, we have 93% of our prison population are men. Like for that, that would tell people that men are bad. But I tell our young men, I say, I don't think that that's the, what, what it is. I think it's, we don't have tools of dealing with some of this emotional overload. So we store it up and then there's this moment of like anger, rage, we do something absolutely uh, devastating to our communities and to each other and to ourselves. And that's what I think that we have to give our young men more tools about. Not that we don't give everybody tools around that, but I think that just in, t- in the sense of kind of our, our primary work is helping our young men navigate that. I saw that you, oh, I saw that you spoke at Google and, um, you know, um, so you also work with adults. Yeah. Yeah, we do a lot of workshops with adults now, and we we've been invited to a lot some conferences, uh, working some doing some work with teachers, um, and giving adults. What we're learning, we're learning the the corporate world, right? Because that's hard. Um, mm-hmm. and I think that what we've talked to a lot of people about is that you know, if people have opportunity to be making decisions about your financial well being, you may not want to tell them that you're stressed out or that you're feeling depressed, right? And so that how do you have a a space for people to get real? And I think. One of the one manager I met at Google talked about this idea that in her team, they know that it's expected that they get real, because if you're not doing what I'm expecting you to be doing, and I'm thinking that you're just failing on the job, then it looks it, it, it looks bad on you as a as a product in your production. But if you're dealing with a death in the family and you're trying to pretend like you're doing okay because you don't want to let your team down, but you're dealing with human stuff. She said, I tell our team, like, they know that we get real together. And I'm like, that is so powerful. And it's so important, I think, that, but I think it has to come from the leadership. It's almost one of the things that is hard for the grassroots to make this thing happen. The, the leadership has to say, it's important for us to know how our team is doing really, not just what they can produce for us, but how are they doing? And, and, when, and if our companies can get more caring about the individuals and their employees, I think in that way, in a heart way, I think it can do definitely transform. And I think there's some companies who are trying to do more of that. Um, yeah. And so that's some of our work we're trying to get into as well. Helen, you had a question or did you want to talk about your recent experience at the school? Or Well, <laughs> you know, that that would be a good segue. We, we recently did a training at, a, at an elementary school with about 30 teachers um, in which we asked them to identify what they thought made them different and what made other people different from them. And then we had them all write down a on an anonymous piece of paper something much deeper. Mm. And, and then we crumpled up the pieces of paper and threw them in the center of the circle. And then each person in the circle came and picked out, you know, a random piece of paper and read it. And the challenge was for them to say how whatever was on that paper was a gift to the mm. community. And things were like, you know, I have major depression or I work two jobs because my husband's unemployed or I'm inadequate. And, Mm. you know, all these all these very deep, painful things Mm. came out. And we talked about how they are all gifts to the community because 
of that sense of oneness and understanding that you were talking about, you know, the bond that it creates in the group for people to get real. And I was, you know, whether it's at Google or whether it's, you know, in your in your middle school, uh, it, may, it also reminded me of what you were talking about at Google, reminded me of the whole political scene that mm. if people had these conversations with one another and could get real then we would see each other's pain in a in such a direct way that it wouldn't be so adversarial and contentious all the time but we could get past all that and say you know whether you're a right-wing republican or you're a left-leaning democrat don't we all care about many of the same things and so do your kids that's right. That's right. And they use just different words about it, right? It comes out in different words, but it's that same stuff of wanting to feel like they're like they're going to be okay. Like there's going to be it's going to be good. It's going to be. I mean, I mean, everything may not be perfect, but it's going to. There's some there's some vision of future that is going to be. I can get through this, right? Yeah, that together we can resolve the problems of the country and the world. And that we care about our families and we care about our future. We care about the earth. I mean, it's all so, it seems so obvious. And yet, like you're saying, we have these masks. So I I really appreciate the work you're doing because you're helping people get behind those masks. And those masks really are tremendously responsible for all of this divisiveness that we have in our country right now. It's the masks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Do you do you agree with that, Ashanti? You know, I I think it's it's really interesting. I think you know when we what I think the master for I think master this idea of like how can I be what I think people want me to be? Two things, right? How can I be what I think people will accept or to me to to uplift me like that makes me feel better about myself? Or how can I hide because what I what I really think or what I really feel is not going to be accepted? So I need to fit into this thing. And I think that that's what I, that's what, that's what, I mean, I've seen a lot of different people describe masks very differently, but I think, I, I don't know. I, sometimes I'm confused. I'm like, is that really what you believe? Like, do you really, like, do you really believe that? Or is that what you think is going to make people like you or make people support you? Do you really, like, is that what you really, be- and so who knows? Like you, it's hard to tell, right? Because the only way, the only way you would be able to, is if there was a way for people to really get you to tell what's behind the mask. And I think that, you know, in these workshops, what we uh, give people a chance to do is really say, well, what are the things I'm really ready to let go of? And I think it's, it's a, you got to be ready for it. You got to be ready to be like, okay, I'm letting go of this baggage. I'm not carrying around this stuff anymore. And I think it's hard. I think it's really hard. It, it is hard because there is some reason and I think that, you know, that's what we're facing in the whole country is there, there is some reason people have these beliefs, whether they're racist or misogynistic or they're self-hatred yeah. or they're yeah. angry or whatever it is. There's a reason for it. And, and that's why, you know, Todd started with your story, because there's a reason behind your whole passion about this, this healing uh, group and the motivation to help people do better. You know, there's, you, you lived it. Yeah. And, and I still do. And I still do. Exactly. Of yeah. course. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, the people that voted for Trump 
have some different story. <laughs> and the yeah. kids in your group, you know, if they drop out and they start doing drugs, you know, there's a reason for all of that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's what you give them an opening to say, you know, is, yes, you have a reason for being the way you are, but I'm going to offer you a different way of reacting to that story. That's right. And I, and I think that, oh, there's a lot of, sorry, there's a lot of background noise. <laughs> sorry about that. That's what happens. We're in an school. authentic situation, we're, you know, that's we're in right. an authentic situation. <laughs> we're at a school. Sorry about that. Yeah, and I, right. and I said that. I think that thinking about those people who not only made those votes, but decided and who, who stand up and say, I support this. And it doesn't matter those things about that person. I just care about this. And so it's kind of like, well, I can easily let my mask only show part of it, right? I can say, well, look, this mask, look, today, I, I don't care about people who, who run red lights. I just care about people who litter on the ground. So I'm going to put all my attention on the people. And, I, and, I, and that's, a, actually, that's an interesting analogy. I don't know where I just came up with that one from. But, <laughs> but this idea that, like, what, what do we focus on? Like, what, like, the people who say that this is a person who I want to represent us, um, they had to come up with some decision that I'm willing to – not look at the other stuff. I'm willing to, I'm, will, I'm willing, I'm, I have to be willing. You know I mean, I have to be willing to say the other stuff doesn't really matter as much as this thing. And I think that as a country, as a country, we, we have, I, you know, ultimately I think um, this is one uh, poet, like spoken word poet, uh, rapper, his name is, uh, oh, you know, Prince, yeah, Prince, yeah. 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 He just did a, he had this one uh, piece that he came up with a couple of weeks, or maybe a week ago, and it said, um, he said, I'm glad that Trump won, right? But yes, not for that, not for that. that reason. And yes. I was just like, when I, I watched it about five times, and I was like, that is really powerful. And I think that how do, we, how do we make sure that we make a decision about where we are right now? And how do we make a decision about where we're trying to go? And as I said, I, we, I, I'm not going to get pushed and pulled into uh, wasting a bunch of energy on stuff that I have no control over. Right. That's what the that's what the serenity prayer talks about. Right. This idea of like, like, I'm going to accept the thing I cannot change. Right. I'm going to change the things I can. And I'm going to have the wisdom to know the difference. Right. Because yeah. those are that's how my that's how my world is operating right now. And so um, that that's been really what I see as the most important for me right in this moment is that I can focus on those things that I can be a part of and I can be a part of helping more young people get clear about how they feel, how they think and talk about it and have safe place to do it and then help them push forward around their life and their future, you know? Yeah. That is and awesome. old people too. Don't yeah. leave out us old people, Ashanti. Oh, all of us, all of us. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd like you to tell us about the website and like, how can people contact you? How do you, you know, if teachers want to contact you about coming into their school, what's, what's the process? You know, so our website is um, www.everforwardclub.org. Um, that's our website. And we're on Facebook at Ever Forward Club. We're on Instagram at Ever Forward Club. Twitter is ever is all Ever Forward Club all over. Um, we also um, are currently in the process of a um, uh, crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo, and that's our goal. Is to, we're going to be in ten schools this year, so this is a big year of growth for us. Going to be in ten schools, so we're raising a hundred thousand uh, dollars. We're at about 30, 32, 33 percent of our goal right now, 
And uh, we got it until December 15th. So, you know, they can find that on our website or they can go to Indiegogo and look up Ever Forward Club. Um, but um, it's been really exciting. It's been an exciting journey. And that's going to help us not only to not only run these 10 chapters, have as a, a fully dedicated team for the first time ever, but also serving about uh, 2,000 people through our workshops all over the Bay Area and all over the country as well. Wow. I have another question. I know Todd asked you before about follow-up groups. Do you maintain contact with follow-up groups at these different locations if they choose to do them? Yeah, so our club, we basically run the club. So basically we train the mentors, and so the clubs are operated through us as an organization. When we are doing, for example, uh, if we go like to Washington State and we did a workshop for a school there, they may bring us back again the next year or twice in the year for a follow-up, but they, they don't have a club there. But, you know, wherever, wherever a school, right now we're just going to be in the Bay Area for the clubs, but as we begin to grow the clubs, we will have clubs ideally all over, all over the nation at some point. And that will be mentors who get trained by us, who work with young men on a weekly basis in schools. Um, and this is part of our growth. It's part of our expansion. So we're, right now we're focusing right here in the Bay Area, and then we're going to prepare for getting this part really strong. But we do workshops. We go, we go all over to do the workshops. So those are, uh, we, we could do a, you know, we come and do a workshop once, or you can come and do one, and then we'll come and do a follow-up later. So we have a lot of different packages. It really depends on what the school needs, what the community needs. If, they, you know, if, they're, if they're interested in starting a club of their own, we're in the process of figuring out how do we provide some tools for people who want to start their own. But those are things that you know, are, are in a growing organization which is very new for us. Right. Awesome. Well, it's very exciting, and congratulations on the successes that you've had, and we are totally with you and behind you. Thank you so much. I totally agree. Let's talk about uh, what's coming up next week, and then we'll come back and say our final goodbyes, all right? Okay. So next week, it's Love, Religion, and Climate Action. Meet Catherine Hayhoe, world-renowned evangelical climate scientist. This is actually a show that was pre-recorded. So on Thanksgiving, they, we, uh, we're going to do a, a rerun, if you will. So uh, love, religion, and climate action aren't often found in the same sentence. But you'll find all three when you meet client, climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe, named by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in 2014. First, she has the facts about climate change and our responsibility our responsibility for it. And she has religious faith and love. An evangelical, she's an evangelical Protestant and the wife of an evangelical minister. She speaks to the moral imperative behind climate action. Plus, she speaks caringly to all, including other evangelicals who deny human responsibility for climate change. So if you want a glimpse of this remarkable woman, woman, you can watch a bonus clip from the documentary Years of Living Dangerously where you'll see her in action with climate deniers. It's on Interrevolutionary TV is where you can find that. That's Beth's channel on voiceamerica.tv. Just click on the video on Catherine Hayhoe and uh, please listen in next week. It's a great show. If you haven't heard it before, you'll discover how she managed to keep love in her heart as she sees the damage that we do. We got one minute left. So Ashanti, I just really wanted to thank you for joining us today. Uh, I mean, um, you're awesome. And uh, yeah, I, I was so touched by your story in the mask you live in and I hope we can stay connected. I hope so. You know, I really appreciate this opportunity to talk about our work and, 
we're looking forward to growing. So, you know, as people are hearing this and feel like their community has a need, like we look forward to hearing from them and they can reach out to us on our website. Wonderful. Ever forward. Ever forward. Yes, ever forward. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. Yes. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.